let me tell you about two of the most amazing stories in the Bible, okay? So the first one is in the book of Acts, and the early church is all still in, Jer- oops, in Jerusalem at this point, and the leaders of the, the Sanhedrin, which was like the Jewish ruling council, um, they arrest some of the apostles. And so uh, one of the apostles they arrest is a guy named James, who was John's little brother, who wrote Revelation and all these books, you know, the Gospel of John and everything, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And James uh, is executed. They cut his dome off, I think is how it happens. And so the crowd loves it. Ha ha, we've got these Christians, you know. And so they have Peter in custody too. And so uh, Peter's probably going to get executed the next day, right? Now, executions, like, I'm not uh, super picky about movies that I watch, you know? But man, I really can't watch those movies that are like Saw 4, watch some guy get all his fingernails ripped off and stuff, you know? People back in the day, though, they used to love this stuff. It was like they would go, the gladiators, you know, all this stuff. These public executions were kind of a big spectacle. And a lot of times those people were tortured in front of everybody, um, you know, cutting body parts. It was horrible, right? So in this culture, a lot of times what would happen would be some sort of a public flogging or beating or something, and then you would be executed. You would be either crucified like uh, Christ was, or you'd be um, you know, beheaded or stoned or something like that. There's no good options here, you know. This is going to be a rough day for Peter. And so he knows, okay, this is going to happen tomorrow. And he's sitting in prison. And this angel comes to bust him out of prison. And the angel's like, hey, Peter, I'm paraphrasing. Hey, Peter, it's time to go. I'm busting you out of prison. And then Peter just, like, doesn't move. And the angel, like, kicks him. Hey, Peter, wake up. And then he wakes up, and then he busts him out of prison. Peter's like, oh, man, you know, like when you get out of bed. And then there's a whole thing. He takes him through the gates, and he shows up at the Christian's house. And at first, the girl answers the door, and she doesn't really believe it's Peter. And there's a whole thing, right? Okay, so let me tell you the amazing part about that story. If you were going to be tortured and executed tomorrow, how deep would you be sleeping? <laughs> right? It's a minor little detail that absolutely blows my mind. Peter was out like a light to the point where I'm pretty sure it says something about like, you know, like you had to wake him up, you know? That's insane. Peter's like peace of heart is to that level. There's another very similar story. It's in um, 2 Kings 6. And there's a prophet. His name is Elisha. And um, what happens is the king of Syria has brought his army into the land of Israel. And every time he does some sort of a military maneuver... Elisha the prophet gets a word from the Lord. This is what the king of Syria is going to do tomorrow. So the army of God, the army of Israel moves. And then when Syria tries to do their thing, they're like, oh, they're gone again. You know, how does he keep doing this? And so somebody tells the king of Syria, well, what happens is this guy, Elisha is this prophet. And, uh, you know, they, uh, he tells them what's going on. So the king of Syria gets a great idea. All right, let's take the entire army over to Elisha's house. Right. And let's go get him. Oh, I guess it's warm enough. Oh, no, it's because it's on a timer to turn off at 11. We're going to turn it back on, though, because last week, by the end of the sermon, it was like a camping cooler in here, right? Filled with ice. Anyway, back to the story. So what happens is the king of Syria goes, let's take the whole army over to Elisha's house. So Elisha, and he has a servant that lives with him. 
wakes up the next morning. The whole army of Syria is outside. The guy peeks out the blinds, you know, like in the movie. I'm, I'm assuming they had blinds or whatever. Sees the whole army out there sharpening swords and stuff, you know. <laughs> and the servant freaks out. And Elijah is just eating his oatmeal or whatever. Like, like it's a normal morning. Reading the paper, got some orange juice, you know, got his robe on. And uh, the, the servant, you know, is freaking out. And Elisha basically says, oh, you, you silly little man, you know. And then he prays, Lord, open his eyes. And um, here's the verse. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, the servant, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Okay, so this is the story. The army's outside, and Elisha says to the Lord, Lord, show my servant this cool thing that I can see. And then the guy opens his eyes, and he looks out, and behind the army of Syria, did I say Israel? I meant Syria. Behind the army of Syria is this massive army of uh, angels and whatnot. There's another story in the book of Kings where one angel kills like a hundred and something thousand you know, troops, right? So all you really need is one of these guys. There's a whole hillside full. And that's why, in the moment, Elijah was just sitting there reading his newspaper with his oatmeal, completely chill and trusting in God. These stories, to me, are absolutely amazing. The level of trust that these two guys had in what legitimately are crazy, stressful circumstances, it seems like neither of these two guys were really that stressed out. Um, let me tell you a different story from the Old Testament. There was a king, his name was Saul. He was the king right before David. You guys might know about Saul. Okay, so Saul is going to battle, and Samuel, who was the prophet, says, don't start the battle until I get there. God says we should do a sacrifice um, before the battle. So Samuel was running late, you know, flat tire or something, whatever it was, cart, flat cartwheel. Is that a thing? They go flat? Anyway, uh, something's going on and he's running late. Saul starts to stress and freak out, and he does the sacrifice himself, and then Samuel gets there, and Samuel is not happy, right? Because it's not Saul's job to be the priest. It's his job to be the king, and those are two separate things until Jesus comes. Those are two separate offices, right? And so Saul was kind of usurping the authority of the priests, and Samuel's real mad, and he tells Saul, because basically you're not trusting God, because you're not living in the trust like you're supposed to. God's going to take the kingdom from you, and he's going to give it to somebody better. And that's how David becomes the king. All right, so we contrast those stories, right? On the one side, we have somebody who is super trusting. We have these two guys super trusting of the Lord. And then on the other side, we have Saul, who's not. Now, with church people in the modern era, I think we're pretty good at acting like Saul and we're pretty lousy at acting like Peter and Elisha, right? We're very good at figuring things out and worrying and stressing and taking things on ourselves, and we're really terrible at sitting there reading the newspaper and saying, God has an army of angels, right? If Peter, if I'm going to die tomorrow, it's not like God's still not in control. That's because that's what he wants. And you know what is actually, I don't know if it's funny, ironic, is Peter was saved from that execution, which would have been beheading. 
so that a couple of years later he could be crucified, right? But still, he has that level of trust that, like, God is in control. The context today of the passage that we're going to read, where Jesus talks about worrying and anxiety, the context, though, is very important. So what was last week's sermon about? Money, right? Every pastor's favorite topic to preach on, right? It's a double tithe Sunday. We're going to pass the hat twice, right? No, uh, last week's sermon was on money and um, using your wealth and your, your things and your money for the kingdom of God. And you can imagine, naturally, people would be worried. Well, what happens if I use my, my money for the kingdom and then I don't have enough for me? Right? That's a scary thought. And so that's the natural flow into what Jesus is talking about here. So we're going to start in verse uh, 22. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Right? So again, the bigger context is we're still in this part where Jesus is teaching his disciples because he's on his way to Jerusalem for his death and resurrection and then ascension. And so he's like, basically, I have a little bit less than a year now to get these guys ready to launch the church. So this is like the super teaching time that he has with his disciples. And this whole teaching about money and all that and anxiousness falls into this. So here he's now talking about being anxious is what it says in our translation. Um, Do not be anxious about your life. Um, Some translations, my other favorite translation besides the English Standard Version, which is what we read here, is the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. That says this. um, It says, do not be worried. So all throughout this passage, instead of the word anxious, it uses the word worried. Um, I want to read this to you from this reference thing about um, biblical counseling. Anxiety is a constant fearful state accompanied by a feeling of unrest, dread, or worry. That's a good definition, right? It's this fearful state accompanied by a feeling of unrest, dread, or worry. Um, So I kind of prefer in sermons like this to use the word worried or worry because it's less of a clinical word. Um, You know what I mean? But because when I say, oh, what makes you anxious? Uh, I don't know, your brain might go to one place. But if I said to you guys, well, what makes you worry? Everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. So right now, I want you to stop. Everybody close your eyes. Close your eyes. Okay, think of one thing that makes you worry while you have your eyes closed. While nobody's looking. Got one? Okay, keep that in your mind. Here we go. Let's do the rest of the sermon. And for each of you, I want you to keep that thing that you just thought of in your mind. Something that you worry about, okay? Um, Now, let's look at the text. What were they worried about? Food and clothing. Now, last week when we talked about money, we talked about comparing our generation and our time period to like the 1950s. And the 1950s was this supposed like boom, economic boom and everything. And one of those authors that we read last week talked about comparatively, we're a lot better off than any, all those people in the 50s, right? We have way more stuff. We have way more security, you know, uh, than those guys. Most of us in America, middle-class America, let's say, we are basically the wealthiest people that have ever lived, right? We live in the wealthiest country at the wealthiest, you know. I mean, we're the top of the food chain compared to everybody else who's ever lived in history. These guys that Jesus was speaking to, remember the cultural setting. Poverty and famine were a much bigger threat to these people in their lives. Um, 
there was a very real chance that somebody here, these people didn't have savings accounts, and, you know, if you go out on the lake and then the fish aren't biting, there's nothing to eat. You know what I mean? These people didn't have closets full of cheap clothes, right? I, I heard a pastor say this a long time ago, but imagine if a jacket cost $3,000. You know, that was what it was like living in this culture, right? Clothes were expensive, and most people bought clothes like we buy cars. Once every now and again, every 20 years, you would buy some clothes kind of a thing, right? And so <clears throat> um, <coughs> if we think again of the last two sermons that we did, so the one last week and then one way back before, um, two sermons ago, we talked about how Jesus was calling his people to suffer and to be, to be persecuted, but to rely on the Holy Spirit while that was happening. And then last week, Jesus called them to use their money for kingdom things, for kingdom purposes. Now, using your money, like these are real things to worry about, persecution and running out of money. Um, Using your money for kingdom purposes is hard enough when you're like us, where, okay, if I live a life of real faithfulness to the kingdom, it's going to shave two or three years off my retirement. Like that's a I don't know, or whatever. Like, if, if you do the math, okay, if I had saved the money that I gave to church and missionaries and whatever and put that towards, that's, that's a tough enough call. Now, imagine if that same choice was, I'm going to use this money for the kingdom, and then maybe I won't have anything to feed my kids. I won't have any clothes to wear, right? So these are real, like, for these people, you can see where this worry comes from. And so Jesus tells them, well, don't worry. How does that work, Right? That seems impossible, doesn't it? Well, let's look at what he says. Um, He keeps going. He says, For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. So if I were to ask you, what are the basic things you need for life? You would probably say something like food, shelter, clothing, and Wi-Fi. No, just me? Okay. Uh, (laughs) You know, you can't read it without Wi-Fi, you know? Um, Anyway, Jesus says here, that life is more than food and clothing. What does he mean by that? Well, what he, don't think of the things that keep you alive. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about life, again, we talked about this last week, as your whole existence, you know? Um, uh, with eternal perspective, there are things that are more important than food and clothing right now. Okay, so an example of this is, have you ever really, I don't know, am I the only one that does this? I don't want to look at Melissa while I say this. Have you ever really wanted something that you thought was really, really important? And you're like, I have to have this right now. And then you got it. And then like three weeks later, you stopped playing with it. I don't, I don't need these eyes of judgment over here. <laughs> right? Okay. Because in that moment, man, we're just like, oh, we're hyper-focused. This is the most important guitar I'm ever going to buy. I mean, uh, don't look at me. <laughs> right? this is the most important thing ever. And then, you know, Melissa walks by and dusts it off a couple of months later. And I'm like, hey, don't judge me. Um, That's kind of the perspective Jesus is telling us to have, except the difference is food and clothing are actually important. But what he says is in the grand scheme of things, there are things that are more important. So uh, what he says is, why don't you let God handle that stuff, handle the stuff that's not really that important, the food and the clothing. And then you, if you're going to worry, let's spend time worrying about the kingdom, right? Let's worry about the important stuff. And so what Jesus does to illustrate this point to his followers is he gives a couple of short little parables. He says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They 
They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you uh, than the birds? So you guys know the story of Job, right? Job is God and Satan basically, this is the new John version again, God and Satan basically make a bet. And Satan says, I bet I can make that guy Job hate your guts. And God says, nah, he's a good dude. And so Satan goes down, he messes with Job's life, kills his family, gives him boils all over his whole body. It's pretty awful what happens to Job. So the whole book of Job is these Job and his three moron friends sitting around trying to decide why this is happening to Job. Did Job sin? Is there justice in the world? What's going on? And at the end of the book, God shows up, and his answer to Job is basically this. Hey, man, I created the world. You don't get to ask me. (laughs) You don't get to question what I'm doing, right? You don't have the perspective to see what's going on. Now, part of that whole thing with the book of Job um, is in Job 38. Part of God's answer, I mean, to Job. Who provides for the raven its prey? The young ones cry to God for help and uh, wander about for lack of food. So basically, Job, part of God's answer to Job is, hey, don't I care for these animals, right? I, I'm the one who holds the whole world together. I know what I'm doing. And then he, the same image then is picked up years later in the Psalms. He gives, the, he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. So this is probably what Jesus is picking up this language. He didn't make this up. Jesus is an Old Testament scholar who, um, who his whole life is just bathed in the scriptures. And so he's using this, these scriptural uh, pictures to teach the people. And his point is simple, right? God takes care of birds. He's very good at it. You know how I know? Because these birds are real fat when they poop on my van down at the Marina Greens right? And I have to go get car wash all the time, and they're disgusting. And I'm like, man, maybe God, you should let some of these birds starve to death. I don't know, just me. Is that just me? Okay, anyway. <laughs> birds, but the point is simple, right? Birds don't farm. You ever see a bird farming? No, right? Uh, they don't bake bread. They don't stress. They just eat the food that God provides. And the argument, it goes from, it works like this. It goes from the lesser to the greater. Ravens, they were unclean, disgusting birds, you know, people did not like ravens. They were the lowest of the birds. We have some ravens that sit on a pole on the apartment building across from our house. And I've never really wanted to own a gun um, until these ravens, right? You know, the, you hear them, yeah, making the noises. And they make all sorts of horrible noises. <coughs> and they drive me bananas. It was the same kind of thing in the ancient world. People didn't really care for ravens. Um, they were, you know, the, the bottom of the birds, right? And so the argument moves from the least to the greatest. If God cares about these stupid birds that nobody even likes and he takes care of them, of course he's going to take care of you because you are infinitely more valuable than a bird. The picture in the Bible, the, the theological idea is the image of God. We talk about that a lot, right? People are made in the image of God and that makes them special and unique. So if he's going to take care of the ones that aren't made in the image of God, he's going to take care of the ones that are. Um, Spurgeon said this, Charles Spurgeon, consider the ravens in his sermon on this passage. Consider the ravens as they cry with harsh, inarticulate, croaking notes. They make their wants, they make known their wants, and your heavenly Father answers their prayers and sends them food. You too have begun to pray and seek his favor. Are you not much uh, better than they? Does God care for ravens and he won't care for you? That's Jesus' point. Does God care for birds but not you? No, you're his children. He, 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 so you let him take care of that stuff. Um, verse 25, keep going. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you who are 
not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So Jesus now says, what does worrying even change? When you spend all of your energy worrying and stressing, can you add a single hour to your lifespan? I always say this. I love this. Um, This was a lot more, had a lot more oomph when I was preaching at the old church, and they had a, a, a bunch of older folks there, right? But I used to say this a lot. Look, if God didn't have something left for you to do, you'd be dead, right? <laughs> That's the, the, the biblical truth, right? As soon as God's done with having stuff for you to do, it's time to go home, right? It, it's the end. If God really is in control and sovereign over the universe that he created, that means that he holds your life, everything about your life in his hands. The moment that you're going to die has already been decided. God knows when it's going to happen, he knows how it's going to happen, and he knows how I'm going to do it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, he knows how, you, how, how it's going to end for you. And you sitting around and worrying, you can't add a single second to your life. All it's going to do, all that worrying is going to do, is ruin the quality of the time that you have left. Right? You can't change the, the time of it, but you can change the quality of it. And so... By worrying, what we're saying is everything is in my control, and I'm worried about what I'm going to be able to do, and I'm not going to trust that God is going to do what he's going to do. By letting go of that worry, you're surrendering to the sovereignty of God. I have a pastor friend who um, has a whole Sermon on the Mount tattoo on his arm, right? And part of the tattoo, he has a whole sleeve, and all of it is different stuff from the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this passage shows up in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew. And uh, part of it is he has right here a little clock. And I always wanted to steal this tattoo idea. I like this. But it's a clock with 13 hours on it. And the idea is, by worrying, I can never make a 13-hour clock, right? I can never add an hour. It's just not going to work. And so, I don't know. I just I always love that. All right, let's keep going. Verse 27. Jesus gives another illustration. So first he talks about the birds, and then he says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So the lily, I'm sorry, the ravens was all about food, right? The lilies is all about clothing. Think about the clothes that you have, right? The clothes you're wearing, the clothes that you have at home. Nothing that you own looks as good as a field full of flowers, is as beautiful as a field full of flowers, right? Even my black-on-black-on-black-on-black Johnny Cash look is not as cool, with my pink hat, is not as cool as a field full of lilies and flowers. What's the country that grows all the flowers? Is it the Netherlands? Yeah? You've seen, have you seen those pictures? It's so cool. I mean, it's very organized, which also I really like, you know, the rows of flowers. But, you know, just the gorgeous colors of a field full of flowers is better than anything we have. Solomon, who is kind of the pinnacle of, like, um, decadent fashion. I don't know. Who's someone now who's known for outrageous clothes? Who's a famous person? The, who's the lady with the big dresses with the, you know, she always shows up at award shows? No. Yes, that's the one from um, the movie with the guy about the singing. Yeah, yeah. I do movie reviews on the side. Um, <laughs> yeah, so even, you know, like Solomon was the, the early 
version of Lady Gaga. If you would be like, these outrageous clothes, you would say Solomon. And that's Jesus' point. Even Lady Gaga with all her clothes on doesn't match up to a field full of flowers. And you know what the flowers do to look so great? Nothing. They just grow. They're just flowers. And he even says they throw them in the oven, right? Because a lot of times um, they would burn grass and hay because there weren't a lot of trees in Israel. So this is one of the fuel sources, right? So he says, you know, uh, even that stuff, right? All right. So let's, uh, it's the same argument again, though. It's lesser to greater. God cares about these flowers and they're just stupid flowers, right? They, we burn them to death, right? <laughs> you know, you're made in his image. So let, why, again, it's the same thing. Why don't you worry about the kingdom and let God worry about your clothes, right? Let God worry about what you're going to get at Old Navy or whatever. All right, verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you're about to drink, nor be worried. So he gets back to food now. How is this any different from what he's already said? And I think the answer to that is the, this includes an action, right? Don't seek it out. Um, does this mean that you should never plan your meals, does this mean you should never use Grubhub to order some food, right? Well, Jesus says, I should never seek what I'm going to eat, right? If we take this very literally, you can't use Grubhub, and that's the point of today's sermon. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, you can enjoy cooking. You can use Grubhub. The context here is important. Jesus is afraid that they're going to be so worried about food and clothing and whatnot that they're going to use it as an excuse to not use their money for the kingdom of God, Right? And they're going to be so worried and they're going to be, you know, doing all this stuff. And so that context, again, this isn't a universal command to never think about food. It's a command to not use the things that worry you to keep you from the kingdom of God. And to say, I'm so worried about this. Look, I don't have time for this Pabst stuff that John's always talking about. All right, verse 30, he keeps going. For the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Now, remember... Jesus is talking here to a mostly, or if not all, Jewish uh, group of people who were part of the covenant people of God. And so to this group, what Jesus says is those other nations, they have their gods, and uh, there's, you know, we're surrounded by these pagan, um, these pagan cultures who do all this worship. And in the worship of those other gods, everything was very ritualistic. So think of like from the Old Testament, the god Baal or Baal. Um, who was the god of the weather. And the way it worked is you can control the god of the weather by sacrifices and whatever it was, right? So it was very transactional. I show up, I do the sacrifice, Baal owes me rain, okay? That's what Jesus says, is, look, in those religions, that's how that all worked, and it's a terrible system, but that's not how it works with us. They have transactional gods, but what does he say we have? A father, Right? The nations have their gods, but we have a father. The God who cares for the ravens and the lilies, right? He's not just some faraway deity. He's part of the family. He's our father. And so a lot of times when we stress and we worry and we, we try to control our circumstances, what we're doing is we're acting like the pagans. We're thinking that, this is, that what's happening here is within my control, right? I have this control in my hands. But Jesus says we're not supposed to act like the pagans, Right? Because our God is not like their gods. We're supposed to act like children of a loving father. Do you remember this from Luke 11, uh, which was probably like seven months ago? Um, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Right? So 
even bad fathers sometimes give their kids stuff. Even evil men take care of their kids, you know. But our father is good, and the father loves his kids. And again, without getting back into that whole sermon, the ultimate example of that is the Holy Spirit. Um, But that sort of plays into this, right? The Holy Spirit who empowers us for the kingdom is what the Father gives. So verse 31, that's why Jesus says, instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. You guys know this is a very famous verse, right? You know, the King James, seek ye first, you know, that. um, Look at this. A couple of different translations. I like the ends of these. Instead, pursue his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Seek the kingdom of God above everything else and he will give you everything he needs, uh, everything you need. So here's the question then. Do you worry about the kingdom of God the same way that you worry about other stuff? Okay. If your neighbor doesn't come to faith, you just go, oh, well. Like, would you be as stressed about that as if, I don't know, what's something bad that can happen, right? I don't know. Like, uh, somebody steals your car. I'm the only one with a car, huh? Uh, If somebody, (laughs) you know, something like that, right? Do you stress about that? Normally, we do the application sort of probing questions at the end of the sermon, but I wanted to stop here and just ask that question, right? Do you worry about the kingdom as much as you worry about the things that impact your life, right? Do you worry about the job more than your kingdom, right? Do you like savings and investments or just all this stuff, right? Does the kingdom stress you out? Because it should. That's what we should worry about. That's what we should think about. That's where we should put energy. Have you ever sat in a coffee shop reading your Bible or whatever and just had this sinking feeling in the pit of your gut because you know, I'm sitting in a room with people who are headed for judgment unless Jesus gets into their life unless they turn to the Lord. That stresses me out, right? And I probably, though, not to the degree that it should, right? That's the kind of stuff that we should be worried about, not all of this other stuff, right? And sometimes, you know, we talk a lot about missional living and everything, and sometimes it's easy to sort of go through the motions but give up in our hearts. Okay, I'm going to check something off of my PAPS to-do list so I can tell John I did it right? But what I really want you to do is I want you to be stressed about the people on your past list. I want you to like, I want you to feel the weight of the kingdom of God in your guts, right? That's why in the New Testament, the word, like the seat of the emotions in the New Testament is not hearts like we have, it's guts, right? It's actually bowels. Um, What's the joke is uh, the young guy says to his wife, oh baby, you move me. (laughs) Anyway, feel free to use that at school and be the most popular kid there. Um, Right, but I want you to feel the kingdom, right, in your guts. Um, but that's why also this next verse is so comforting. Because even that is not complete, you know, it's not all up to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your father's good pleasure to give you that stuff. When you worry and you invest in the kingdom, God wants you to do that. This is what his heart is. Um, imagine a man who worked his whole life real hard worker, you know, put, and he's responsible, you know, he saves his money, whatever. He's got one of those investment accounts that when you take the money out at the end, you get taxed at the end, you know. So he's getting ready to retire, takes some money out of his account. And when he does that, the tax bill comes and he has to pay the tax bill. What's his attitude going to be when he spends money on taxes? What's all of our attitudes when we spend money on taxes? These crooks, I'll kill every one of them, right? That's what we think, at least that me, right? Who's, what's from friends? Who's FICA? Why does he get all my money? 
Um, <laughs> right? We kind of all begrudgingly pay taxes. Now, imagine that same guy for some reason takes money out of his bank account. And instead of spending it on taxes, he spends it on his daughter's wedding. And it's a great day, right? The booze are flowing, people are dancing. She's marrying this great godly man. He's excited, right? I raised my little girl. I get to walk her down the aisle. Is he going to spend that whole day going, oh, that champagne was three bucks for that glass? <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully he'll be joyful in how he's spending this money. Now, the point is, a lot of people think that God's heart is like when God has to, when we pay taxes. Fine, I'll give you this thing, but I'm going to be very kind of grumpy about it. But that's not how he is, right? God is um, like the dad paying for the kid's wedding, for his daughter's wedding. He's excited to give us the kingdom. He, he's joyful in how he gives us this stuff, right? It is his good pleasure to give us that stuff and then the, um, to let us into the kingdom. And then the, the passage closes with this. So this is the application then. Jesus applies it. Because God wants you to give the kingdom, wants to give you the kingdom, because he wants to take care of you, this is what you should do. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. <clears throat> Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, when you read that first part of this verse, let's take a look again, right? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. There are two temptations with everybody who just read that verse. And I'm guessing everybody in this room went one of two ways. One, he can't possibly mean that. Okay? The problem with that is, this is pretty much what the early church did, right? We, we open the book of Acts and they're selling houses to help fund the, the food for the widows and to help take care of each other as a church. Okay, two, maybe you're like, yeah, sell your possessions, right? Jesus and Lenin were practically besties, you know what I mean, right? And uh, there are some theologians like this that, I mean, really rag on the evangelical church and yada, yada. Um, the problem with that is the early church also had stuff. How can you meet in somebody's house for church if nobody has a house because they sold all their houses, right? So on the one hand, we have Jesus says, sell your possessions, and then the church went and sold their possessions. And then on the other hand, a lot of them didn't. And because they didn't, they were able to host the church and take care, you know. So before we turn this into a black and white command, we need to really think about the principle behind the command is what's important here. William Hendrickson, who's a commentator, he said this, uh, no, I don't have, Wait, yeah, no, um, he said this, um, the father, where is it, the father gives, his children should do the same in their own limited way, but from the heart and generously. So again, this ties back into last week, instead of worrying, we should be generous. The two, those two things, fear and, and generosity are kind of opposites, they don't go well together, you're not going to be generous if you're fearful. And I think the key here is Jesus never says, sell all of your possessions, right? He just says, sell your possessions. Now, um, uh, let's read this verse actually first. Sorry. Uh, oh, I'm missing a verse. No, I'm not. Here it is. For, it was in the wrong order. Verse 34. This is the last verse. I said the last one was, but this actually is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus says, go sell your stuff, give to the needy, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember the heart we learned from the Bible project. 
in the Bible doesn't mean like your emotions. It means your whole, they use the word heart like your whole being, your entire self. For where your, your identity comes from, where you put your trust, all of this stuff, there, there your heart will be, also, you know, where your treasure is, there your whole being will be. Um, Jesus is asking this question. Is your being, is your heart connected to money or to the kingdom of God? Right, he says this, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God in money. Jesus talks about money a lot and worry about money a lot because it's one of those sneaky sins that all of a sudden you don't even realize you're doing. It sneaks in, this sort of idolatry, it sneaks in to our lives. And so worry, is a, it keeps us from the generosity that the kingdom uh, asks us to have, right? That God in his kingdom wants us to have. And so when he says, sell your possessions, what he doesn't say is sell all of your possessions. But what, uh, what he was telling these people in this specific situation was, look, a lot of you don't have money to be generous, but you have some stuff. So go sell some of that stuff so that you can take the money and then you can be generous. You know what I mean? Like you should have things that you give up for the kingdom of God. Now, the context of this passage is specifically money, right? Uh, but I think we can take this idea of worrying and we can apply it wider than money because it's not just fear about losing money and, and security uh, that keeps us from the kingdom of God. There are a lot of different fears that will keep you from the kingdom of God, right? There's a lot of different sin and idolatrous things. There's control, fear of losing control of a situation, uh, pride, which is fear of you being the middle of everything, anger, lust, laziness, right? There's a whole bunch of these things that we worry about and we, these, these idolatry, these um, idolatrous things that we do that keep us from the kingdom of God. Because we, as a fallen people, we're wired to worry. We are wired to think that we are big enough to control things. Our, that's our fallen sinful nature. It says you're important enough that you can control these circumstances. And so, um, w when we worry, what we're doing is we're just living into the lie that our uh, ancestors believed in the Garden of Eden, that we're the middle of everything. And so in this passage, we have a couple of different pictures that help our, reorient our hearts, right? Um, the first one is that God is a loving Father. That's such an important picture. Um, he's not the angry uh, you, did you ever have one of those really angry teachers that you couldn't stand? That you were like, man, who hurt you, you know? <laughs> uh, he's not the angry principal in the sky, right? He's the loving father. Um, the second picture is that he's a shepherd, right? Um, the image of God as a shepherd is so comforting, right? You know the passage, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? Oh, wait, I put some of that in here. Uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Or if we flip over to um, John 17, right, where, oh wait, uh, yeah, Jesus says, um, I am the door to the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. Sheep did not listen to them. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The, sheep, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and life, have it more abundantly. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's the picture of Jesus, right? Is that he is the good shepherd. 
But jumping forward in the story, what we find out too is not only is he the good shepherd, he's also the lamb of God. And this is where it really, the rubber really hits the road. There, um, Jesus is the one who became the sacrifice for us, right? That is the ultimate picture of love. And um, there is one thing that every human being in the world should absolutely be anxious about, should absolutely worry about, and that's having to close your eyes in death and open them up and look at God the Father and to face that wrath and that judgment that nobody's going to be able to stand before God and say, I, this, I don't deserve this, right? And his wrath is going to be great and it's going to be awful. And facing that wrath is the worst thing that can happen to a person. But Jesus, as our representative, he faced that wrath in our place, right? He, this is the ultimate, uh, you don't need to worry because uh, the thing that you should be worried about, he faced it for you. And then after that, he says, now I need you to trust that I'm going to be a good shepherd and I'm going to take care of you. Even when from your perspective, it doesn't seem like it. Even when I'm calling you to spend more money than your fallen and sinful self wants to spend. Even when I'm telling you not to worry about clothes and food. I want you to focus on the kingdom and trust me because I already did this huge thing for you. You should be able to trust me with some of this smaller stuff. So the way that we apply this, let me jump to the end. I have some questions here. And we put these in the, the U version app, you know, so, but here's what you do. I want to, I want to identify what worries me. This is the process here. What, when that's, when I'm struggling with that worry, what part of the gospel am I not believing? And how can I seek the kingdom instead? Right? You see those three steps. So first identify what it is that you're worried about. Ask yourself, what part of the gospel am I not believing? and then say, what should I be doing? How could I be investing in the kingdom instead of worrying about this thing?